So a couple of years ago, uh, I got a letter from Toyota. And they told me that I needed to bring my truck into the dealership um, because in the, pa- in the previous couple of years, um, a lot of people had been saying their gas pedal was getting stuck down. And um, people were, some people were just involved in really traumatic wrecks. Some people actually lost their lives in accidents uh, of kind of getaway cars, cars that would not stop and would only go faster and faster. And around the time that I saw that letter from Toyota, I also heard about it on a podcast uh, that I listened to. And this podcast starts out with 911 audio of a, of a man and his family frantically talking to the dispatcher. And he's saying things like, my car's going 100 miles an hour. I can't get it to stop. It won't stop. I'm pushing the brake. The brakes don't work. And the dispatcher's like, well, can you put the car in neutral? Can you kind of drive on the side of the road to slow yourself down? He's like, nothing's working. It's only going faster. And the problem was they were on the Pacific Coast Highway, which you've ever seen pictures of that. It's on the coast, and it's very twisty and windy. In the last few minutes of the tape before it went out, uh, you hear all the people in the car screaming and this guy frantically trying everything he could think of to get the car to stop. So this, ha- this happens more and more over the country. Uh, Pete Frantic drivers call 911 and they say, my car won't stop. And the dispatchers go through all the stuff. Can you put the car in neutral? Can- do the brakes work? Push harder on the brakes. And they're saying, nothing's working. The car's only going faster. And you can imagine for Toyota, this is not a great advertisement to sell cars. And so they issue the recall. And here's where things get interesting. And this is what the podcast was about, actually. Uh, in the years after Toyota issued the recall, it was the most expensive recall ever. Billions of dollars Toyota spent to try to fix the problem. Well, the problem was they couldn't find the problem. There was no mechanical explanation for why these things were getting stuck. And there's actually, in, in a lot of newer cars, black boxes in them, just like planes have, that record every single thing the car does. And so they're going through all this data, and the car works exactly as it's engineered to work. Nothing's going wrong from an engineering perspective. And the, the fascinating thing and the tragic thing they found in almost every case of this situation, the problem was is that the driver was mashing down the wrong pedal and didn't know it. They were, with all the force of their body, pushing on an accelerator, thinking the whole time that it was a brake, and that's what the black box data reported. The brake was never touched. The gas pedal was pushed down further and further. They think they're getting themselves out of their predicament, and they're only worsening it. And what happened in these moments is people are freaking out. They're they're doing what you would do in that situation, which is try everything. When the thing you, you're doing that you think's gonna stop the problem doesn't work, you try everything, right? There was a very simple solution to the gas pedal problem, just hit the brake. But in the panic, we forget all the simple stuff and we just start trying to do everything. And here's the point if you're tracking with me, we do this in all, of, all areas of our life, right? When we try something to fix a problem and it doesn't work, or we think it's not working, we panic and we try it all. And the problem with that is when we try everything, it distracts us from trying the one thing that actually would work. These guys were so busy trying to work with the gear shifter 
and hit what they thought was the brake and everything else that they were distracted from actually looking, what pedal is my foot on? So to the Christians in the room, to our friends in the room who are not Christians or don't know what you are, the question's all the same. Don't we do this with God all the time? Even if you don't believe in him, even if you don't buy any of this stuff, don't you do this with him? Don't we try things? We try the gospel. We try what Ben said at large group that week. I tried God. I tried Christianity. I tried scripture reading. I tried fighting this temptation that I've dealt with since I was a kid. I've tried saying no, and it's not working. And what do we do? We do everything. We try everything. Frantically. Anything that could make the pain stop or the insecurity disappear or the fog lift or the, or the struggle, the battle to go away. We try it all. And it is specifically in these moments of trying everything that, that we're most at danger. Uh, in the car scenario, it's in that moment that you're most in danger of losing your life and of crashing because you're so distracted, you've lost sight of the simple solution. And for us as well. It's in these moments when you think, God's not working for me. This Jesus stuff doesn't work. I'm still X, Y, or Z, struggling with this or struggling with that. It's in those particular places in your life tonight that you are most likely trying everything and you're most in danger of clicking on the clickbait to use the language from last week. You're most vulnerable to the con artist in these moments. You're most gullible to think there's a secret out there, a formula, a secret solution that's gonna make those things go away and that's gonna work for you. And we end up, like we said last week, with nothing. Paul would say, to use his words, it's in these moments you're most vulnerable to being taken captive. Paul was talking to people who've been freed liberated by the gospel, freed from death, freed from their own past, freed from their present struggles, freed from a futile future. They'd been liberated, and Paul said, you're most in danger in these moments of being enslaved again, pulled back into the cell in these moments. G.K. Chesterton has famously said, um, when people stop believing in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they believe in everything. It's that they believe in anything. The, it's not a binary choice. I will believe in God or I'll believe in nothing. It's I will believe in this God as he's revealed himself to be in scripture or I will be vulnerable and gullible to believe anything and everything that crosses my plate and resonates with my gut opinions. And who knows whether your gut opinions are true or false or lead you well or lead you poorly. This is exactly what we've been saying. Chesterton just puts a different swing on it. When what you're trying isn't working, you will try, it's not that you'll give up, you'll try everything. And that's dangerous. And so that's what, that's what Paul is talking about in this passage uh, that I read just a minute ago. It was very long, very clunky, filled with words. You're like, what in the world is he talking about there? Why did he say that? I don't even know what that phrase means. But that's what he's talking about. And so I want you to think about those places in your life right now that you're saying it's not working. And I want you to think about what you're doing to try to alleviate the pain, the problem, the struggle, the battle. And that's where Paul would speak to you. 
And so what makes us get to these it's not working moments? I've tried that, Ben. Come on. I'm getting nowhere. Do you have anything else you can tell me? Anything else you can share with me? How do we get to those moments in the first place? I think a lot of ways. I mean, I make up lists every week and they don't come out of heaven. They come out of my mind. I'm sitting in there trying to think, how does this work for me? Well, I get to these moments when I'm in suffering, when I'm like just confused and and wondering like, why is this happening? I don't understand. Uh, I'm prone to ask the question, it's not working. Um, Some of you, it might be some situation you're in, your singleness, and you've been praying and praying and praying, you're like, Jesus isn't answering my prayer, or you're a transfer student, you're a freshman, and you're lonely as all get out, and you're doing everything you should be doing, you're putting yourself out there, you're showing up to stuff where you feel so awkward and just self-conscious, and you're like, I've been praying, and other people have been praying for me to feel connected and at home, and it's not happening, what are you doing? It's not working. How do we get to these moments? That. Or you're not growing at the pace you thought you would. Or the way you thought God would deliver you from that lust or that attraction isn't turning out to be the way he's actually delivering you through it or from it. And so his work is not lining up with how you expected him to work. And we say things like, it's not working. And then all kinds of theological ignorance. We just don't understand how God works. He's told us how he works. We just don't understand. We haven't learned that yet. And all kinds of other stuff. But I think there's two big reasons. If you want to simplify it down to two things, I think there's two big picture things. The first is this. When we think that Jesus or the gospel is not working, we turn to everything. And specifically, it's not just everything. We turn to other messiahs. And this is where Paul says this. Um, in the passage that we read. He talks about these, all these things, these things specific to first century Turkey. That's why they don't make sense to us. If first century Turks heard about the stuff you deal with in your life, they'd be like, huh, come again? What the heck does that mean? Well, we say that about them, which we have completely different contexts. But Paul's talking about things that trip them up. Other messiahs, they're prone to look to to deliver them and to work, to stop the problem like the break or to, to accelerate their growth or their maturity or whatever else. And for them, it's a highly, highly uber-religious context. First century anywhere, really, until the last 200 years, the whole world was uber-religious, uh, super spiritual in every way. For them, their tendency was to, if Jesus isn't working, then I'm going to look, I'm gonna, my eye is going to be caught by the things that still look like Jesus. Paul says these things have an appearance of wisdom, but no power. He says they're a shadow of things to come. They're a shadow of Christ who is the substance. So here's the little little memory device. Paul says when you think Jesus isn't powerful, when you're convinced and your emotions are down to your bones that he's not good, that he's not present, that he's not a savior, Uh, you'll turn to things that look like him. You'll turn to Jesus' shadows. He is beautiful. He is powerful. He's all those things. We love the silhouette of the Messiah. And when we think we can't have him or don't have him, we'll turn to anything that bears that silhouette, anything at all that still looks like his shape. And this, for you, could be pretty much anything in the sun. I started to make a list, and I'm like, I don't know. You tell me what are the things that 
that look like Jesus to you, that promise to deliver you, that promise to heal you, promise to bring peace to you, promise to end the suffering. What are the substances? Who are the people? What are the things, the experiences, the bodily feelings that have a silhouette of Jesus the Savior? And you're like, well, if I can't have him or if I'm not getting him, I'll go chase the shadow. Well, what's the problem when you chase a shadow? You see it all the time with little kids. All you do is end up tired and with air because there's no substance. There's no substance. So you can chase shadows. We can chase shadows and we do all we want and all we end up is tired, frustrated, disappointed. And guess who we blame for the failure of our Jesus shadows? The one our shadows look like. Jesus, the substance. And this is why you will hear things like, I tried God, he didn't work. I tried Christianity, it doesn't work. What we mean is we tried idolatry, and it didn't work. I tried chasing a shadow, I tried hugging a shadow to be in relationship with a shadow, and I got nothing. Well, the good news is, you weren't chasing Jesus, and there is substance, and he is real. He is powerful, as we've been saying. That's the first reason why kind of we get to these places. We, we actually chase the, the shadows of the Messiah, not the, the, not the Messiah himself. Like we've been saying week after week, we want a controllable God. We want to harness divinity and put it in a product that I can move around and maneuver. And that's not what Jesus is. He's alive and he's his own person. Paul says these things have the appearance, but they have no power They have no power to change you, no power to grow you, no power to save you. So these are the the things that leave us empty. The second thing, though, is what I want to spend a, a bit more time talking about. It's not just that we chase these Jesus shadows and end up breathless and disappointed and ask, is it working or say it's not working. It's also because we misunderstand two things that are crucial to get in order. We misunderstand how God works in the lives of his people. So this is, let me talk a little bit more to the Christians in the room. If, if you have put all of your eggs in Jesus' basket, you trust your life in his hands more than you trust your life in your hands. You believe him, that he lies and doesn't spin. You believe that he's resurrected and not still dead, and so we just talk about ideas. If you believe him, you've believed in him, you've put your faith in him, you buy what he says, then what does it look like for him to work in your life? Well, he does some things instantaneously the first time you look to him by faith. It's a definitive point in history. You could, just like an earthquake or just like a lightning strike, you could track the time, the second, the place, the moment. And then there's a lot of things that he does progressively throughout your life. A little bit today, tiny bit tomorrow, a little bit Wednesday, Friday, a little bit the next day. So some things he does instantaneously, some things he does in a drawn out way progressively and when we confuse these or reverse these things, we get into a world of trouble and just like the other, the Jesus shadows, there also we ask the question. It comes right out of us. It's not working. So let me get a little bit more specific. Uh, What does it mean? What are the things that Jesus has done in you instantaneously which means they're already true? doesn't matter whether you believe them or not. Your grasp of these things has no bearing on their truth for you. What, is it, what has he done instantaneously? What has been accomplished? What is irreversibly true of you? 
Um, Rachel, do you mind pulling up that first slide? I wanted to, you're not going to be able to read these words. All I wanted you to do is see color because uh, this chunk in the middle between kind of the orangish stuff, that's Paul in this letter telling you all the things that have already become instantaneously true of you if you are in Christ. These are things you can go home tonight and sleep well and say, I can take it off my to-do list. I don't have to do it. I don't have to attempt it. I don't even have to wonder if God's doing it. He says he's done it. So I get to rest and sleep. God says, if you're in Christ, you have already received Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, by a faith he gave you, and you've already been rooted in him, which means God has already transplanted you out of the toxic dump that we were born into. And like a careful gardener, he has planted you in rich, nutritious soil and taken care of your future growth. And so you can stop fearing that you've somehow lost the love of God by what you've done if you're in Jesus. Verse 10, you have already been filled in Christ Jesus who is the head of all rule and all authority. And in verse, 10, verse 15, he says, Christ has already disarmed the rulers and authorities that mock God, that dismiss God, that scorn him. He has already triumphed over these forces. The odd irony is they just haven't heard word yet. They're still fighting God thinking that there's still a fight to fight. He has already vanquished his foes. He has already triumphed over the mockers. He has already triumphed over the pseudo-authorities that think it was actually possible to crucify Jesus and him not come back to life. He has already triumphed over these. And he says, you're united to this Jesus who has triumphed over these things. And so what that means is you can stop fearing the culture police. You can stop fearing the social police. We can stop fearing political authorities. We can stop fearing the king or the queen of your little friend group who dictates to the friend group what is acceptable and what is not, what's cool to do and believe, what's not cool to do and believe. Why? Because Jesus stands on their chest like a victor over someone who has been defeated. And it gives great confidence to his people to know I don't have to fight that battle, it's done. Verse 11, he says, you have already been circumcised and here we get into crazy town. You're like, whoa, especially if you're not used to the Bible. He says, you have already been circumcised and he gets more specific with a circumcision made not with hands, not by a rabbi. But Paul says uh, what he means, you have put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. A little more clarity, still confusing. Which means this, God has already fundamentally divorced you from old you and new you. The only thing that's, the, the only place of continuity is your personality, your body, your, you know, your temperament, your sense of humor maybe, but a complete divorce, a complete recreation and renewal of you. There was an old Ben, there is a new Ben. There is a Ben who has died. Paul says a few verses later, you have been buried with Jesus in baptism. He's saying in a very real way, not in a, kind of think of like a teaching tool way. It's kind of like you died. And it's not like you died. He said you died. The old, dead, selfish, narcissistic you is in a tomb somewhere, dead, lifeless. And you are new. 
What does this mean? It means you can stop rebranding yourself and reinventing yourself. Why? Because God has reinvented you. That's what it means to recreate, right? To invent something is to make something new, and to create is to, create, is to make something new. He says he's recreated you. Leave the branding campaign, leave the reinvention to God. It's already done. You're new. All there is to do for you is to wake up to that reality. He goes on, he says, you've already died. He says, you've already been buried. There's already been this break between old you and new you. These ships, to put it in our language, have already sailed. And you're on them. The train has already left the station and you're on it. Can you imagine what emotional relief this can bring to many of you, many of us, who keep wondering, am I new? Has he changed me? Will he change me? Is there any hope in this life he's called me? These are things that are one and done. You can't re-die. You can't re-resurrect. Paul says you've already been raised with Christ. You can't re-receive Jesus. You've already received him once. You've already been united to him. Verse 13, he says, you've already been made alive. You've been resuscitated out of death. And here's where things get even more freeing and more peaceful. Paul gives us, Paul gives us the fine print here. He does not say, God's been gracious to you. He's given you another start. New day, new you. Don't mess it up. It's not, he doesn't say any of that stuff. Paul says, you've been made alive. He says, you were dead in your sins but now God has already made you alive with Jesus. How was he able to make you alive? Here's the question. Do you wanna know it's true? Do you wanna not be captive to your own emotions telling you it's true, it's not true, I'm still guilty, I'm free, I'm still guilty, I'm free. Do you wanna know the fine print, how God did it? He says in the passage, uh, first, how he made you alive is by forgiving you all your sins, yesterday's, today's, and tomorrow's. How did he do that though, Ben? That's what I want to know. How did he forgive me my sins? Was he just in a good mood one day and he's like, you know what, you're a good guy, boom, forgiven. Doesn't work that way. A debt has been accrued by you. A record has been filled by us and it stands against you. It accuses you. The devil is right when he says you're guilty. Our conscience is correct when it says, what is wrong with me? In that sense, it's often telling the truth. So something has to be done with the record, with the, with the, with the record of debt, if you're gonna be forgiven. And that's what he says God has canceled. This record that stands accusing you all the time. And he says he has nailed it to the cross of Jesus. He has annihilated it as far as east is from west. Are you from your record? You from your reputation? You from your past? You from your present you from what's gonna go wrong tomorrow. Already, friends, this is true of you. There is no call to action on your part. It's to sit there and believe it. So when you add all of this up, does it make a little bit more sense in, I think, verse seven, where Paul says a key mark of a maturing Christian is gratitude. Does that make a little bit more sense now? We've been through the litany point by point, giant chunk in the middle of all the stuff Paul says has already been done for you. Stop trying to make it true. It's already true. 
That's why he says the people who are actually growing, it's not that they're arriving and don't have struggles anymore. It's that they're aware of all that God has already done for them. Gratitude, joy, peace is a key marker of maturity and growth in the gospel. So if you have put your faith in Jesus, all these things that we've talked about are already true of you. You simply receive it. Paul says it in verse six, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. You receive the grace and mercies of God the way a rock at the bottom of Niagara receives trillions of gallons of water. You sit there and it washes over you. It is not your power. It is not your water. It is not yours to control. You sit there and it shapes you and it forms you and it bathes you. That's the grace of God. So, remember again, we talked for a while about that. I said, when we get mixed up, things that God does instantaneously for you with things that he does slowly, progressively, okay? We just talked about all the stuff that's already true of you, the water that's already falling on you. What about the progressive stuff? What about the baby step, baby step, baby step? What about all of that? Well, if you can pull that thing back up, um, that's where the colors don't come up really well, but any, if you can see green, there's green on there. It's, it's just a few places where Paul talks about the stuff that's an ongoing process in your life. It's not instantaneous, but it's little by little. And a few of these things he talks about, he says, you are being nourished. He says, you are growing with a growth that is from God. And then literally, if, if, we, um, if we could read Greek, this is the way that verse six would go. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, keep walking in him. Listen to the verb tenses here. Having been rooted, past tense, and being built up. That's a present progressive, right? And in him being established or being confirmed more and more in the faith, just as you have been taught. Some things have happened to you in the past. Some things are happening right now and they're gonna happen tonight and tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And so the, the, the takeaway from this is do not lose heart. God has finished a lot of his work in you. He's accomplished it and he's resting and sitting on a throne because he's done with that. But Christ in me, Paul says, the hope of glory. Christ the wind who blows our sailboats to full conformity to him. These are the things that are slowly happening. We are being more and more established in faith which means that that's a continuum. There's a time when you're not very established it's scary, it's shaky. Does this really hold water? Is Jesus really faithful? Am I really new or not? There's room for that in this passage because you are being established in the faith confirmed. You are being built up, which means it's like a brick wall. There's a first layer and a second layer and a third layer and a fourth layer and a fifth layer. It's a very slow work that Jesus is faithfully doing in you. Paul's command that comes out of this is if this is true, then walk in Jesus just as you received Jesus. Here's where we get real and then we end. Um, I said I wouldn't give him credit, but uh, Dylan put out this today. I laughed out loud at this because I don't like to run. I really don't like to run. I used to run. I don't like to run anymore. Brain. Uh, this is, says jogging up top. Brain. Let's talk, shall we? Me. Okay. Brain. Are we being chased? Me. No. Brain. Are we chasing something? Me. No. 
brain. So what the heck are we doing then? Heart and lungs, we also have questions. <laughs> Here's the point of, of why this kind of leaped out to me today and was like, hmm, that's interesting. Here's the point. When I am running, I am thinking. When I am walking, I'm not thinking. If you took a jog today, you were thinking. How do I need to pace myself up this hill? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to speed up? Man, this hurts. I want to stop. You're thinking when you're running, when you're walking. How many of you thought about your steps from your car to here? None of us. When you're walking, you're not thinking. Rankin Wilburn uh, says, that the Christian life is a life of walking turns out to be one of the most challenging aspects of it. The simple repetitiveness of it. Left, right, left, right, again and again, over and over, all the way, every day, like a long walk uphill. We might prefer to fly. We may wonder if there's shortcuts. And there might be some, but you'll find out what they are. Uh, But when you find out what they are, humiliation and suffering, you'll probably prefer to walk. Therein lies the danger. Walking is so ordinary that we don't think about it. Walking is so uh, humdrum and everyday and run-of-the-mill that it never gets any of our thought. And, and Paul says, walk, not run, not fly over the chaos now that you're a Christian. Don't concern yourself with all of the stuff going on on the ground, the war, the chaos. He says, walk. And walking is just hard because of that stuff. And so how do we walk well? This is setting us up for two weeks when we start talking about Colossians 3. How do we walk well? We hold fast to Jesus, the head. Because Paul says he is the head that nourishes the body, which is you. He is the one who causes your growth, who energizes you to walk. He says it's a growth and energy that comes from God. How do you walk well? You start thinking about walking. How do you think about walking? The passage we talked about tonight has got to be something you revisit. This has got to become something you think about. This has got to become what you think about when you're saying it's not working. I'm done with this. That's how you walk well. I want to end with a story of what winter is like in Minnesota. I saw this article a, a while ago. It's talking about, it's a guy who lives in Minneapolis. He's talking about 100 years prior, his grandparents, what they had to do just to stay warm. Life during the winter revolved around tending fire because fire was key to surviving the cold. And tending a winter fire was a lot of work. It began during the warm seasons because you had to think and plan ahead for the winter fire. You knew that unpredictable snowstorms and severe cold were coming. You'd still have to do nearly everything you had to do in the summer, but everything would take longer in the winter, and you would have less daylight in which to do it. If you ran out of fire fuel in the bitter cold, you were in big trouble. And so you were cutting down trees long before the first flurries, chopping them into logs, figuring out ways to keep them secure and dry. And then when the winter hit, the fire was always on your mind. No matter what else you were doing, if you didn't fuel the fire, it went out. If the fire went out, the temperature dropped and it took a lot more, more wood, more work, more time to reheat a cold room and cold furniture than to keep them warm in the first place. 
So every day, besides the rest of life's demands, you split wood, you restocked the fireside, you kept the fire fed, you cleaned out the ashes. The fire was the first thing you tended in the morning, and it was the last thing you tended at night. This isn't just a description of how to keep your house continually warm. It's a story about how to walk well. Requires a lot of work. To use the metaphor of last week, how to pitch your sails that you can catch the wind and move in the right direction. Requires a good bit of work, constantly on our minds, remembering who you already are in Jesus, what he's already done of you, and what he is doing tomorrow and the next day and the next day requires this kind of tending. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've already done the work. All, what you call us to do is remember the work, to see the work, to rest in the work. We thank you that you have done the work because no one else and nothing else can do the work of saving a guilty soul, of resurrecting a dead person, of making an enemy of God a friend of God. So thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for sending us your spirit who day after day helps us walk. Help us to walk in him, we pray in your name, amen.